one of the things I've come to appreciate about the Christian leaders who have mentored me in the past is the way that they ask really good questions. When I was at Regent College getting ready to graduate, Carolyn and I were hoping to be back in Ottawa. I had the strong desire to serve in the Anglican way, but the Lord had other plans for us at that time, and he led us to serve in the Baptist world. I applied for two positions. One was a youth pastor position at a little Baptist church in a place called Tilsonburg, Ontario. And the other was the lead pastor for a church in another little village called Lakefield, Ontario, which is just north of Peterborough. I knew I could be a youth pastor. I had done it for quite a few years. But the idea of being a lead pastor was terrifying. I had never done it before. And I did not think that I qualified being so young and fresh out of seminary. But after interviewing for both communities, to my surprise, I, would, I was offered both positions. And I was struggling to make a choice between these two, these two roles, these two jobs. So I went to my pastor and my mentor friend, uh, Daryl Johnson, who was one of, the, one of the pastors at the church I was attending at the time. And I explained my predicament to him. And then Daryl, he just listened very patiently. I think I rambled on for about half an hour. And then he very calmly just asked me this question. He said, which position do you feel would most help you rely on God? Instantly, I knew that I would need to rely on God more to be a youth pastor. Oh, sorry, to be a lead pastor. I, I knew I could do the youth, pa youth pastor job because I had, I had been doing it. But the lead pastor job was, it was way out of my comfort zone. Daryl's question helped me process what I was feeling and thinking. And I was able to make a decision that looking back, I can see now was God's call in my life. And this is the power of a good question. A good question can orient us towards God. It can help us discern better what God is saying to us. And then it can actually launch us in the direction that God is calling us to move. Now, when it comes to asking good questions, there's no one more skilled than Jesus. Read through the Gospels and pay attention to the kinds of questions that he asks. What good is it to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? What do you want me to do for you? Which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Why are you troubled and doubts rise in your minds? Do you want to be made well? Jesus asks a total of 307 questions in the Gospels, and they're all worth contemplating. But there's one question that Jesus asks that could be described as the ultimate question. Because the, the answer to this question sets in motion our salvation, making it possible for us to experience life with God now. Before we look at the ultimate question that Jesus asks, we need to look at the context that Jesus asks it. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He has cleared the temple. And he's taught several parables about the nature of God's kingdom and how it's going to be taken away from those 
who are not producing the kind of fruit that God is desiring to see. The religious leaders of his day knew that Jesus was talking about them. So they bring out their smartest theologians among the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the teachers of the law. And they ask Jesus a series of questions, not because they're interested in hearing what he has to say, but they're trying to trip him up intellectually and theologically so that they can accuse him of blasphemy and then ultimately have him arrested and killed. The Pharisees ask, we looked at it last week, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus takes a coin, he holds it up and asks, whose image is on this coin? Caesar's, they reply. Then Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Then the Sadducees ask a question. They give this kind of background story, this hypothetical analogy. They say, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for, for him. What would happen if there are seven brothers? The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left the woman to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman dies. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since they were all married to her? Jesus responds, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither be given or or um, they, they, will, they, won't, they won't get married. There, there won't be any marriage. They're going to be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, who is not the God of the dead, but the living. Finally, the teachers of the law ask him, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors as yourself. And then Jesus pivots, and then he asks the ultimate question. What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? They reply, the son of David. King David was a Messiah. There's lots of Messiahs. Messiah just simply means the spirit-anointed king. The Jewish expectation was that God would raise up one of King David's offspring and establish his kingdom forever. But Jesus takes this common understanding of Messiah, and then he combines it with Psalm 110, verse 1. And he asks, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one can answer the question. It's a mystery. A mystery is something impossible for us to understand. No one among Jesus' accusers can understand this mystery. That is, until Jesus reveals the mystery himself when he's on trial before the Sanhedrin. The high priest asks Jesus, are you the Christ? the Son of God. Jesus responds, Amen. It is as you say. Amen means you can bet your life on this. Amen. What you have said is true. I am the Spirit-anointed King, the Messiah. The living God is my Father, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
Jesus sees himself as King David's Lord and Son, but he also sees himself as the Son of Man character that we read about in the book of Daniel. The prophet wrote, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus is essentially dropping a nuclear bomb on the whole religious establishment by saying this. He's, He's telling his accusers that he is God in the flesh, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the highest authority, the one who all people will eventually bow down and worship and adore, and whose kingdom will endure for all of eternity. When the high priest hears this, he tears his clothes and he says, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look how we have heard this ourselves. And then he asks the Sanhedrin, what do you think? And they all cry out, he's worthy of death. Jesus knew that by answering the high priest questioned truthfully he would be condemned and crucified and this was always God's plan on the cross Jesus did something for all of us he conquered our enemies he put our enemies under his feet he put sin to death he defeated Satan he conquered the grave Three days later, he rose to new life, and he said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven and sat down at the Father's right hand. Ten days later, he and his Father sent the Holy Spirit. And over the past 2,000 years, Jesus has continued to remain King David's Lord and Son, rescuing all who call on him from sin and evil and death. So that all who go on believing in him would experience his love and be transformed by his love into a people who love like he loves. That's what Christianity is all about. Love is the greatest commandment. It's the fruit of the spirit. St. Paul says the three great Christian virtues are faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Love is the reason, I believe, why all of us come to church Sunday after Sunday. I believe that we are all longing to experience God's love through our fellowship, through our worship, through prayer, through the direct experience of God's Holy Spirit touching our spirit, speaking to us. The kind of love that we experience in Jesus is a kind of love that is patient and kind. It doesn't envy. It's not boastful. It's not proud. It's not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices always with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. The kind of love that we see in Jesus is a kind of attentiveness. It's a, it's a watching and a listening and a, and a focus on the other. This is the way that Jesus and his Father love one another. If you read the Gospels and you just look at the way that Jesus describes 
his relationship with his father, he'll say things like at the end of John's gospel, sorry, at the end of John 17, where Jesus prays, he says, righteous father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they, referring to his disciples, know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known that I myself will be in them and that our love will be in them. When we hear the voice of God the Father speak at Jesus' baptism, he says, this is my beloved son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father speaks the same words, but then adds, listen to him. And Jesus explains that when the Spirit comes, he will universalize his presence and take what belongs to him and make it known to us. It's interesting, the Father is always pointing away from himself to Jesus. And Jesus is always pointing away from himself to the Father. And the Spirit is always pointing away from himself to Jesus. Within the Godhead, if you read scripture, it seems that all eyes are on Jesus. He's the center. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And his desire is that we would receive his love. How do we receive his love? By being intentional in what we allow into our hearts and minds. And this is where Psalm 1 comes in. As Christians, we can read the Psalms and the whole of the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, God's Lord and Savior. Psalm 1 is describing the way to live a blessed life. To be blessed means to be living in God's presence. Psalm 1 verse 1 Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. The, the, the wicked sinners and mockers, this is a way of describing all those things that influence us to live in rebellion against God. We are to be mindful of the ideas and the people we walk, stand, and sit with. Because we become like the ideas and the people that we spend the most time with. Instead of living whereby we are influenced by the world, we are called to be in the world, but to not be of it. Instead, we're, we're to delight ourselves in the law of the Lord and on his law to meditate day and night. The invitation is for us to turn away from everything that we know is drawing us away from God and to pay attention to Jesus. Delight in him. Meditate on his word. To meditate means to think deeply. It means to let Jesus's word sink deep into our souls so that we would not only be hearers of the word, but that we would eventually start doing what he's saying. And as we delight in Jesus and meditate on his word, we find ourselves abiding more and more in his love. It's not that, we, it's not that God loves us more when we, when we do what he says. It's that when we do what he says, we experience his love more. God, God doesn't change. God's love for us never changes. It's just that we change. And in order for us to be transformed, we need to walk in step with what God is saying to us. And that takes effort. That takes um, intentionality on our part. It's not going to happen automatically. When we live this way, we find ourselves abiding more and more in God's love, and we become 
the psalmist says, like trees planted by streams of water, bearing the fruit of the Spirit and prospering in what we do. But the wicked, the psalmist says, are like chaff. Chaff is the leftover seed, the leftover seed coverings that are separated from the seeds when threshing happens, when there's the threshing of the grain. I don't think we, I, I don't really know what that looks like. I've, I've never experienced the threshing of grain, but I think it's like where they, they take the grain and they put it on like this table or this, this kind of uh, uh, floor, and then they, they have an animal or a person, and they come and they, they step on all of the, the, the seeds so that it breaks apart the, the, the crusty part, and then, and then the wind just kind of blows the chaff away. It's quite a difference between chaff and a life-giving fruit tree. When we just drift along with our secular culture, riding the wave of whatever is trending, doing whatever we feel like doing in the moment without any consideration of how our actions might impact our own souls or other people, then the Bible is saying that we're, we're like chaff that we just, there's not a whole lot of substance. But when we turn to Jesus, who is God in our flesh, and we trust in him as our Lord, and abide in his love, and meditate on his word, over time, we become like a life-giving tree, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. The answer to Jesus' ultimate question forces us to make a choice. Will we accept him for who he is, for how he has revealed himself to us through scripture, the one to come to our rescue, the one who loves us with a never-ending, always and forever kind of love? Or will we continue to go our own way, trusting in ourselves, fighting our own battles, trying to love in our own strength? Every day we have to make a choice. You might be here this morning and you don't feel ready to make that choice, and that's okay. You can just keep listening. But perhaps some of you are listening and you believe that Jesus is David's Lord and Savior. And you're longing to receive his love and grow stronger in the faith. If that's you, then I invite you to pray this prayer along with me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying in our place. Thank you for rising to new life. I acknowledge that you have rescued me from sin, evil, and death. I need your help. I'm tired of living in my own strength. Teach me how to slow down and delight in your presence. Fill me with your love and empower me to love like you love. If you prayed this prayer, tell somebody sitting close to you 
or come and talk to Michelle or I after the service. We'd love to connect with you. Let's keep praying and seeking the Lord's face together.